Hello, and welcome to the twelfth and penultimate episode of The Sulfuric Secrets Season 1. It has been a long journey that has led us here. Nearly 300 years of history, as we see the secret lives of brilliant scientists, world leaders, and organizations, as they work in the shadows towards some secret goal. Last week in episode 11, there were some major revelations. If you haven't yet listened to The Secret History, I strongly recommend you give it a listen to catch up. This week, we jump forward in time, beginning to bridge the gap between Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gate Ascension into a terrifying new digital realm. More answers are going to be provided as we get closer to Season 1's explosive conclusion. Episode 12 of The Sulfuric Secrets is called A Conversation Over Coffee. In 1997, 39 dead bodies were found in an upscale Rancho Santa Fe mansion. Posed, castrated, and robed. No one really knows what happened with the infamous Heaven's Gate suicides. No one, that is, except their leader, Marshall Applewhite. The heartbreak and anguish would have been unimaginable for his followers if they knew that the cause they dedicated their lives, and literally their deaths to, was not to go up to a physical spaceship hidden behind the comet Hale-Bopp, but instead to go down to a prison deep, deep below on the ocean floor. The prison bars that encaged them was the global fiber optic network. The prison, the internet itself, and the inmates, the 72 demons of the Goetia. And although Mr. Rollo had built this prison long ago, he was no longer the caretaker. There were a set of new guardians now. Heaven's Gate weren't the first, or the last, but they were one of the most successful recruitment drives for an ever-growing legion. The very concept of ownership is a uniquely human one. While we agree we can own a car or own a house, we can't really take them with us when we die. And what about less tangible things, like humans or land? The first was what produced the concept of slavery, which we looked at last week. It is with the history of the second question, that is, ownership of land, that we may better understand the secret battle taking place in the background of this story, and how the new guardians came to be in the ownership of the Goetia. The Latin term terra nullius translates as nobody's land, 
and was one of the principles of international law that empires around the world used to justify their spread like a virus. One of the more notable cases was the island continent of Australia. The indigenous Australians were one of the few human races that had a method of existence advanced enough to allow them to live on the land for 65,000 years. And it likely would have been permanently had the invaders never arrived. This sustainability was achieved through a careful balance of agricultural and irrigation technology and nomadism to allow the land to replenish. The British had invaded Australia in the late half of the 1700s, and by 1835, the governor of its state, New South Wales, had made the proclamation of terra nullius, which meant that the indigenous Australians were actually illegal squatters on their own island of Australia. Under this decree, the indigenous Australians never had, and never will have, claim to ownership of the land, as the British Crown was the first to take official possession of the island. But the indigenous Australians never saw themselves as owning the land. No one could own land in their eyes. They were merely the custodians. And as custodians, seeing the land as a provider rather than just an object to be conquered, they had a deep spiritual connection to every valley, every tree, every animal, and every string comprising the greater web. And so, when the ritual of the copper basement was completed in the mid-1800s, another so-called open, unclaimed land was created. But unlike other similar cases throughout history, this land brought doom to all those who sought a spiritual connection with it. Unfortunately, the new guardians had declared terra nullius on this unclaimed land, and humanity was destined to suffer thusly. Eliza Garland had been employed at the International Consortium for Advanced Research and Exploration, or ICARE, for three years. As a typical Generation Y member, she fit the stereotype of highly educated, globally minded, and of course, profoundly ambitious. That ambition had taken her around the world. Versalife, North Node, Uritania, and across the biggest NGOs, not-for-profits, and R&D firms around the world, before making it to a senior role at iCare. The shell that covered a cold, single-minded ambition was a warm, fuzzy, and personable demeanor. She was there to secure grants and donations from high-value donors, or HVDs, and she was good. There were certain elements of the sale that unfortunately went beyond words and facts. For that, she dressed well and kept in shape. Today at 2.30pm was a coffee meeting with an HVD 
at the Café Olay. Eliza knew the cues. Dress conservatively, but still show off your assets. Smile. Ask questions. Get them talking. And then guide the conversation imperceivably over time down to four key factors. One, how much are they willing to donate? Two, to where? Three, are there strings attached? And four, for what period of time? Three hours, tops. Cafe Olay was an official preferred location for eye care, and luckily it was close to a bar that she wanted to check out after work. She would be able to type up her notes from the meeting first thing in the morning. Researching the meeting had been a nightmare. The guy must be over 70 because there was virtually nothing about him online. But knowing that he was old gave her plenty to work with. That and a name. Ernest Morgrove. It was now 1pm. Eliza thought she should quickly grab a bite to eat, then start getting ready. Great. A message from Mr. Morgrove. Eliza. Frightfully sorry. Trouble on the train. We'll have to meet at Pequod's. Same time okay. Address attached below. Regards, Ernest. Eliza regretted opening the email. Icare had very good reason to have Café Olay as the preferred location. But the CEO was out for lunch already. Crunch time was rapidly approaching. Normally Eliza would reschedule without the approval, but for an HVD, she couldn't risk it. Particularly with Ernest. Despite him reaching out to Icare, he'd been almost intentionally slippery in setting up a meeting. Eliza typed out a response. Hi, Ernest. Not a problem. See you there, smiley face. Eliza was definitely not smiling. Two forty five was an odd time to request a meeting. So Eliza got there at two thirty and saw Ernest already sitting there on the front veranda, facing forwards. Even without the striking cream suit and Panama hat, Ernest looked much younger than 70, and clearly had stronger eyesight than a 70-year-old as he rose to greet her when she was a fair distance away. Eliza shook Ernest's hand and sat down, asking if he had ordered anything yet. Already, Eliza had been given a plethora of information. Ernest had waited for Eliza to order food. This politeness and social grace on his behalf meant that some of the more aggressive sales scripts that she had memorized could be used on him to good effect. And so, Eliza already started with the first line of her sales script as she sat down. Well, considering how much you're planning to donate to our programs, the least we can do is put the meal on the eye care corporate card, Eliza said. Phrasing the donation as if he's already decided, the sense of obligation to repay the meal. Oh, Eliza, you sly dog, you're playing him like a fiddle, she thought. Over the next two hours, Eliza circled in for the kill. 
Considering how lucrative this potential HVD was, Eliza was happy to fill the time with minute detail about eye care. The sort of stuff that even an investigator wouldn't be able to find. And Ernest ate it right up. She reckoned she'd only need two hours to build a sense of genuine human connection anyway. He was in his twilight years. And the tens of millions of dollars that Eliza was slowly goading out of him was a small price for what she was selling. A sense of purpose in his life. And she wanted that payday. She got a 1% commission on all untied donations. But there was a point where Eliza found herself hypnotized into an unfamiliar groove in the record. She got the feeling that she might be revealing a little too much about eye care and redirected back to Ernest. She asked where Ernest might like to direct his donation. She made sure to make a hand signal that would subconsciously lead him to deciding to make the donation untied. And what exactly is it that you do? Ernest asked. Eliza was confused. Was this poster child for Alzheimer's serious? She'd literally just spent the last two hours explaining it. She painted on a friendly, caring smile and answered off another script in her head. But Eliza's blood began to boil when Ernest replied by asking why she hadn't mentioned anything about US Nord yet. What game was this old man playing all of a sudden? As an automatic defense, she regurgitated a statement from the website she'd long ago memorized. Ernest twirled his finger around the rim of the coffee cup before picking it up to take a sip. And only after finishing his sip did he reply, cutting the silence. But, dear Eliza, there is only one military stakeholder for eye care, Ernest said. Eliza shifted in her seat uncomfortably. As if without conscious thought, she explained that iCare publicly discloses its stakeholders on its website and its annual reports. So US Nord couldn't be a stakeholder. That is, if it actually existed. Eliza gritted her teeth, knowing that the conversation was rapidly approaching a loss of all pretense. Then... Ernest made it clear that he knew that US Nord was their old name. He also knew that iCare was a money laundering front for the new guardians. Eliza went cold. There was no point pretending anymore. Eliza stared at Ernest Morgrove, sizing him up. His back was placed strategically against the wall. He could see her coming, in an open area, underneath a bridge, making Satnav difficult. She kicked herself for letting her guard down. Ah, so this is why you changed the location last minute, Eliza said. Yes, I wanted the chance to look a member of the New Guardians in the eye considering that you just reached into your bag for your lipstick. I assume I've got about ten minutes before your friends arrive. More than enough, Ernest replied. 
Eliza was furious now. She placed the transmitter back inside her handbag and glared straight ahead. There was a moment of tension. Two chess pieces on a board at an impasse. Eliza arced forward, threatening Ernest. The promise of tracking technology beyond his imagination. And torture. The like of which would leave no physical marks, but be unimaginable. What was only a few seconds would be warped in his reality into thousands of years. Yes, yes, I'm aware. And it's that technology keeping your friend Desmond alive. But it's nothing in comparison to magic. Ernest rose out of his seat slowly, keeping his gaze met with Eliza. Eliza laughed. She could not believe the audacity of this man. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, said Eliza smugly. Ernest leant down to lift the last sip of coffee from his cup. Any sufficiently advanced magic is indistinguishable from technology, he responded. Ernest placed his cup down on the table, grabbing his coat. We'll find you, Eliza threatened. And I'll be waiting. Let Lynch know I'm coming back for what's mine. As Ernest turned to walk away, Eliza rose to ask a final question. There was a moment of incredulity. Eliza knew she shouldn't, but she had to ask. If you really are him, then can I ask? Eliza choked out the words. Why do they call you Rollo? Ernest stopped to think for a second. It had been hundreds of years since anyone had actually called him that. It was a Viking ruler, I believe. I always liked the name. Mr. Rollo then walked away from Eliza, disappearing into the crowd for good. You've just listened to the 12th episode of The Sulfuric Secrets and the penultimate episode of Season 1. I'd just like to say that it's been a really amazing experience. I only started in mid-October of 2020 and around Christmas I saw that the series had passed a thousand listens which, besides the gift of flight, is probably one of the best Christmas presents I've ever gotten. It's actually really encouraging. The work that goes into each episode is around 30 hours per week during my spare time and weekends, so... I'm really glad to see that some of you out there are enjoying it. I've also launched the website for the Sulfuric Secrets, so please feel free to leave your comments, feedback, or to do a deep dive on some of the research behind it. I'm really keen to hear from the community. I'll be launching a website for Between Two Worlds soon as well, so you can keep up with some of the other upcoming projects. Otherwise, next week is the conclusion of Season 1. Uh, trust me, there's a lot more twists and turns before we close the chapter, so look out. Until then, thank you and good night.